0: So I've already forewarned uh, those of you that are present uh, that this is a message that has to do with laborers and raising up more laborers. And it's, there, there was a series I gave this past fall called Daring to Do with Stanley Dale. And as I was prepping this week and just sort of prayerful about how I should approach this Sunday... I had this one thought uh, that was captured in one of the messages in that series, and that that message was called The Stand-In, and uh, there's a story in it that I am going to utilize here, so I'm actually going to excavate a certain portion of that message and stick it in this one, just because it's always been a very, very significant part of my life, and even my thinking, and it's interesting how stories can do that, Uh, but... There's a character in that storyline of, it's, it's in a book that Don Richardson wrote called Lords of the Earth, and it's about a man. It's about multiple people, but very specifically Stanley Albert Dale. And so the series that I gave this last fall is Daring to Do with Stanley Dale, so it's a dead giveaway that it has something to do with this book, right? And there's a character in that storyline that most people just don't know. They don't know the name Costas Macreese because that was his role. His role was to do something extraordinary and be unknown in the process. And it's only the writer of the book, Don Richardson, that's going to point that out. He's like, by the way, don't overlook this because even though we're writing a story about Stanley Dale, there is one man here that basically laid down his life and risked everything even though he knew that he would get no credit for it. And there is something about that role that is very, very important, I think, for all of us to have is almost a job description that passes in front of us, and that God says, Would you take that job? And you know, the name of this message is The Job Nobody Wants, and that's a has a double meaning to it because it's going to start with the premise that in the earthly sense, nobody wants this job because it's the unseen job, it's the hidden job, it's the obscure job, and we all want the job that gives us honor, that gives us significance. In fact, it would be said that for men, if you've ever heard it sort of broken down, it's like men, one of the things that drives us is the craving of significance. We want to know that our life counts. And it's interesting because that speaks a language to all of us, even when I say that. It's like, yeah, that's true. I want my life to count. And yet when you come to Christ, God says, I can solve that for you. If you believe in me, your life counts. It's like you are matching your purpose. Everything that you were created for is discovered. And then the first thing he seems to ask for is that we give up that craving of earthly significance so that we can have significance in him. And that's a unique tension that we as men face. It's like to give that up. But that's like so important to me, which is why he must touch it. Because giving that up actually unlocks the ability within us to serve him the way he designed us to serve him. So, the job nobody wants. When you come to Christ, God is asking if we would become a nobody. And that's a hard one to consider because it's not that you really are a nobody. You're a somebody in heaven. But down here, have you ever noticed that there is a desire to have the world know your name? I mean, think about the generation we're in. The social media generation is all about being known and having your face in front of people. And yet to become a nobody, what would that mean? Well, I don't think it means that you have no value. It's the opposite. His shed blood shows value to you. It's that you are not craving or itching to have everyone repeat your name. I remember my sister making a statement that uh, truly the the picture of someone being anointed by God is that when they have encountered your life and when 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 you listen to them, you see them, when they leave, you may forget their name, but you know Jesus better. That the final taste in your mouth or in your soul when they leave or depart from your presence is Jesus, not themselves. And that's becoming a nobody. And obviously, we're all very impressed with this nobody, because that's an amazing work that they just did. However, you can understand it in the human sense, that's a huge risk. Because if no one remembers my name, what about my fame? What about my reputation? What about, you know, when I, when I leave, when I, when I die, will anyone... Remember me. Will, will, they, will, there, will there be any buildings with my name on it? Any highways that are named after me? You see, a nobody gives all that up. And so the second meaning of the title is the job nobody wants. Well, that's us. This is the job we want because we're the nobody. And this is the dream job of every Christian. And so that's the irony is the job that in the earthly sense, nobody wants is the job we actually do want. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you recognize that your thinking has become rather weird uh, compared to what it used to be? You know, Jesus Christ has been working on you and you begin to realize your conclusions are very different than they used to be. And the things that you once said I would never do, now suddenly you want to do. Okay, that's strange. Uh, I don't know if you have ever heard my short list, you know, I didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't want to be a missionary. I didn't want to be a pastor. Uh, and so it's like, huh, uh, how you doing on your list there, Eric? But it's interesting because it's not like you should feel sorry for me. Like, oh yeah, there's you know, another fallout from falling for Jesus. You know, It's like, yeah, that's what happens to you. No, no, don't feel sorry for me. I love what I do. You see, God has brought me into my true design, and sometimes you have to wonder if the reason you have such antagonism towards certain directions of life is because it's part of your design spiritually, and there's another factor in your life that is laboring to counteract that. But I find tremendous fulfillment in going against the grain that used to be there in my life. The job nobody wants. So one of the things that we struggle with in modern Christianity, and I'm not saying this wasn't a struggle in previous uh, generations of Christianity, but it's knowing how to handle the Holy Spirit. Because, and we talked about this last week as a student body, but the Holy Spirit, to some people in the conservative side, is just sort of, whoa, 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 we don't deal with the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's sort of the wacko side of Christianity. Well, the Holy Spirit is God, and so you need to be watchful how you handle the Holy Spirit, right? But then some churches will make the Holy Spirit the center because they see a, a problem over here where the Holy Spirit's being ignored. I told you about the, uh, the church in Michigan that can't even say the words the Holy Spirit, so they have the Trinity as the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, and it's like we can't even mention the Holy Spirit lest we become weird, and obviously we know, okay, that's, that's unhealthy, But then so is this unhealthy, when you take too much and put the spotlight on the Holy Spirit and say, "Now featuring the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of churches now that are struggling with that. It's the opposite end of the spectrum, where everything in the church is about the Holy Spirit, when in actuality, and the reason I have this up on the screen, the mistake of putting the spotlight on the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit himself, if he is working, does not put the spotlight on himself. So if you really want to heed the Holy Spirit and show regard to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not going to put the spotlight on himself. What does the Holy Spirit do? He puts the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And so you know that the Holy Spirit is present because the Holy Spirit is putting the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And so now, here's what can happen. This is an interesting phenomenon, is we can feel an ache, almost like sorry for the Holy Spirit. It's like, that's, that's sort of unfair for the Holy Spirit that he can't put the spotlight on himself, that he needs to put it on Jesus And why is that that we have that little stirring inside of us? It's because we realize subtly that what we're saying of the Holy Spirit in that statement is the very thing that God is saying to us, that it's really not about us. And that truly, if we're Christians, the spotlight shouldn't land here. The spotlight is supposed to land on Jesus Christ. And how are we supposed to learn that? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who is not putting the spotlight on himself, but on Jesus And so when Christianity begins to come into alignment, when we begin to gain that right physiological balance spiritually, spiritual physiology, then our life is not the center. The center of our life is Jesus. The spotlight doesn't come here, and if the spotlight wants to come here, we nudge it where it's supposed to go. We nudge it towards Jesus Christ, the same thing the Holy Spirit has taught us to do, because that's what he does for a living. So look at John 16, 13. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So it's the spirit of truth. We know that the truth is Jesus Christ. And he will guide you into all truth. We know that the truth is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is guiding us into the fullness of Jesus Christ. So the mistake of putting the spotlight on the Christian. We have grown up in a version of Christianity, which is a spotlight-driven Christianity. And there's a celebrityism. We understand celebrityism in the world, but how did it get into Christianity? Isn't that an irony? That the very thing that makes Christianity Christianity, which is spotlight doesn't go here, has now become a twisted sort of gnarled mess where the spotlight is on the Christian, oftentimes under the banner of showing Jesus. It's like, oh, well, send the spotlight here and I'll, I'll mention Jesus. And so it's a distortion that has disturbed many of us where we don't quite understand how we're supposed to live out our lives. So when I say that we're supposed to become a nobody, that doesn't quite translate in the modern era of Christianity. So let's go back in time uh, to the era of Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd, two of my all time favorite missionaries, two guys that, you know, if you said, Eric, who would you want to become like? You know, if you could take a pattern out, I mean, let's, let's, let's remove first century Christianity because Jesus is obviously the pattern, and then Paul would also be a wonderful pattern, right? But if you were going to pick a pattern in the modern era, who would you pick? And I'd say Hudson Taylor or C.T. Studd. Those would be my two guys. And ironically, Hudson Taylor was a mentor of C.T. Stud. So Hudson Taylor came back on furlough to bring and recruit uh, young missionaries to China, and who did he get? C.T. Studd. And C.T. Studd went over with Hudson Taylor to China. And so this is C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd is going to term this idea of Christianity, that when you come to Christ to serve Christ, you become one of Christ's etc. And I'm going to just read some good C.T. Studd stuff here, verbiage, and I think you guys will enjoy it. Oops, I forgot to take out that. That's from last week's uh, sermon, by the way. You didn't see that. <laughs> C.T. Stud said, "'Believing that further delay would be sinful, "'some of God's insignificance and nobodies in particular, "'but trusting in our omnipotent God "'have decided on certain, a certain simple line, "'according to the book of God, "'to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization "'of the world an accomplished fact. "'For this purpose, we have banded together "'under the name of Christ, et cetera, "'and invite others of God's people "'to join us in this glorious enterprise.'" We are merely Christ's nobodies, otherwise Christ's et cetera's. We rejoice in and thank God for the good work being carried on in the already occupied lands of God's regular forces. We seek to attack and win to Christ only those parts of the devil's empire which are beyond the extremist outposts of the regular army of God. So he, cre- he created a code for his et cetera. And it's very interesting to just recognize how he was training these missionaries to go and how they were to think. So here's the code. I'll let you guys at least take a peek in at it. The head, the commander, and the director of this mission is the triune God. David selected five smooth stones from the brook to polish off Goliath. We therefore have selected the following five to be the basis of our operations, to which everyone who joins must adhere. So there's five things that you must adhere to if you're going to be one of Christ's, et ceteras. Here they are. Number one, absolute faith in the deity of each person of the Trinity. Number two, absolute belief in the full inspiration of the Old and New Testament scriptures. Number three, vow to know and to preach none other save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Number four, obedience to Christ's commands to love all who love the Lord Jesus sincerely without respect of persons and to love all men. And five, absolute faith in the will, power, and providence of God to meet our every need in his service. Now, you could say, oh, of course I agree with that. Well, that meant, as as this next slide will show you, that they couldn't mention their needs to anyone. They had to mention them to God. So they couldn't ask for money. They had to pray and let God supply it. It led to some amazing stories. The funds for this work shall be sought from God only. Nobody else shall ever be asked for either a donation or subscription. No collection for et work shall be taken up at any meeting held or recognized by this brotherhood. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we have the word of Christ that God will supply our needs. If we degenerate into seeking anything else, the sooner we cease to exist, the better for ourselves, for the world, and for the cause of Christ. Whew, these guys are serious. They meant it, and they turned the world upside down. In other words, one of the greatest is is the reformation of missions in that day. It changed the way that it worked, and it impacted countless tens of thousands. A stand-in. So this is the concept I want to build on, which is when I bring up the idea of being a nobody and insignificant and et cetera, I, I, I get it, that it's not attractive to our soul. There's something in us that wages war against such a notion And I'm not wanting to infer the diminishment of value of anyone here. However, for us to accept the call of God means to accept the fact that we are picking up our cross and following him. That we are saying adios to a previous life, to a previous priority system. And that priority system in our first way of living is we are the priority. And we need to give up ourselves as that priority and take on Christ and his glory as our priority. And that's the transition we are walking through as we step forward in the kingdom of heaven. A stand-in. Someone who fills the place of an actor or actress in order to set up the shot. Now, this doesn't feel like missions, does it? This is a Hollywood concept. They adopt this arduous challenge in order to make it easier for the actor or actress when they arrive on set. They never get the applause. They just get the pain. The stand-in, you know, usually it's going to be someone of a similar skin tone, similar hair, similar height, similar weight. You know, it, it, it's similar. You're you're similar to the actual actor or actress, and the actor or actress, you know, gets all the they get the money, they get the fame, they get uh, the the nice uh, green room or trailer uh, with all the posh amenities and the nice you know the caviar uh, sitting there. The stand-in doesn't get any of that. The stand-in doesn't even make that much money, right? And no one will ever know the stand-in. I don't know how many of you ever look uh, through the credits on a movie to see who did the stand-in for so and so. It's like who cares? And that's what's interesting is that role itself is fascinating to me because it it sort of says something in and of itself that when you're willing to be a stand-in, you're you're in a tough spot. It's the job nobody wants. At the same time, some of you are like, I'll be a stand-in in a movie. That sounds fun. Yeah, it sounds fun the first time around, but you know, when the movie's released and the, the actor-actress becomes famous and no one cares about you, you can imagine. That could be a little jab. It's like, hey, I did a lot of work. The stand-in oftentimes has to stand in the bad weather uh, and while they're setting up the shot. They have to stand under the hot lights while they're setting up the shot. They just stand in. And then when the actor or actress, when the scene is ready, then they get kicked off the set right when they're ready to shoot it and right when all the important stuff is going to happen. They get booted out and the important character comes in. (laughs) And you could just imagine that that would be a little difficult, right? And so that's why I've always been impressed with this role. Self-fulfillment versus God-fulfillment. So there's twos, and in the kingdom of heaven, you're either in Adam or in Christ. And when you're in Adam, it's all about self. And your craving is to fulfill self. And so many of you can recognize this because this isn't far removed. Even though you've believed in Christ, there is a craving that can very easily awaken within us for our own self-satisfaction. And yet one of the things that God is desiring to do via his spirit is to shift this pattern in us where we no longer are about self-fulfillment, we're about God-fulfillment. And this is a transition. When you are about God fulfillment, it changes everything. Matthew 16, 25, and you'll notice that there's also four other renditions of this scripture. I mean, it's, it, so in other words, it's not a small thing in the New Testament. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. So when you hold on to your life and you seek your own fulfillment over in your station one, your Adam station, ironically, you lose your life. By holding on to it, it doesn't actually help you keep it. You actually lose it by holding on to it. But when you give up your life, when you pick up your cross and follow Him, which is the symbol of giving up your life, I don't know what you think a cross is going to do to you, but it's supposed to slay you. It is not supposed to keep you around and coddle you and comfort you. When you pick up a cross to follow, you are saying, Yes, I agree to come and die. And when you do that, when you exit this first zone of your life, this self-fulfillment zone, and you come to follow Jesus Christ, this fulfillment center shifts, where suddenly you find satisfaction in the glory of God. You find satisfaction in seeing people awaken to Christ Jesus. I remember C.T. Studd describing it in his biography, that it was the greatest joy he ever had was leading someone to Christ. And that that's what he wanted to do for the rest of his life, is just lead people to Christ because it was like the greatest pleasure he had ever had. Isn't that just a weird thought? It's a weird thought when all you've had is pleasure based on self-fulfillment. But when you begin to recognize that God wants to reinvent you, he wants to change the way you think and act and live, and to welcome this into your life, it's sort of like Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, we have a tendency over here in self-fulfillment land to think, is we think, okay, so all I need to do is delight myself in the Lord, and then I'll get everything I want. He'll give me the desires of my heart. And God says, that's an interesting interpretation. No, that's not what that means. That means when you give up everything, including all your desires, and you seek the Lord, and you desire the Lord, you crave the Lord, you go after the Lord, then he plants new desires in you. He gives you the desires of your heart so that now you desire the right things. The things that you long for are actually things he longs for. How did you get those things, those desires in your heart? Because you gave up your life. And when you do that, suddenly you begin to be retrofitted to fit God's pattern instead of your old life. Suke. This could be translated in multiple ways. You see, it says breath of life, the soul, the center of feeling and longing, the seat of fulfillment. So, in that previous scripture where we see, for whosoever will save his life, that's Suke, okay, shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his Suke for my sake shall find it. So, if you were to swap out any of these kinds of concepts there, the breath of life, So that's why it's oftentimes considered life. Anyone who will give up his life will save it. And the center of feeling and longing, isn't that an interesting interpretation for it? That if you were to say, oh, let's, just, let's go back to the scripture and put that in. Whosoever will save his center of feelings and longings will lose it. And whosoever will lose that center of feelings and longings and forsake it will actually find it fulfilled. But then here's one that I think is really interesting as far as being able to process and being able to truly define this, the seat of fulfillment. Now, in Ellerslie, we talk about that director's office and the chair, sort of like the throne in the life and the holy of holies that we find ourselves sitting in. And that is the violation of everything that we were designed for, because that's actually God's seat. And we think that by sitting in it, we will find fulfillment, when in actuality, what we find is death and destruction. But when we give up the seat of fulfillment and allow Jesus Christ to sit in it, we find our true design. We find fulfillment truly the way we were designed to find it, as opposed to the way the devil has conned us to find it. So, introducing Stanley Dale's stand in, Costas MacReese, the epitome of a great missionary. This guy, he's just the real deal. And I I remember after I read this in Lords of the Earth the first time, I tried to find out more about him. And I I didn't find a lot, which I guess fits the storyline fairly well. I think he was a lifelong missionary and he started another thing, but he's from Greece. And I think he eventually moved back to Greece, but he's in Papua New Guinea for this. He has a heart for the lost and the unreached people groups of the earth. And he's going to start by basically being a stand-in missionary, which is probably—it's hard to be a missionary, and it's really hard to be a missionary to Papua New Guinea. And it's dangerous in every regard. The landscape is dangerous. The the territory—I mean, like wild beasts, uh, like long, big, thick snakes, uh, sago thorns six inches long. Uh, cliff faces all over the place, one wrong step, and you go into uh, the river below, which is you know rushing and will kill you in a second i mean this is this is a dangerous territory, not to mention the people. The people are uh not to say ungodly is 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 an understatement, okay it 's sort of like they're filled with demons, they are cannibals, and they want to kill you and then eat you okay that's not a good starting point for any missionary, right? So it's hard being a missionary to come into this environment is to give up your life. But then to be a stand-in missionary where they need to take a break for, say, a month and you come in, or they need to take a break for a season, uh, six months, in the long run, it's the missionary that started it and finished it that gets the credit. And if you're a stand-in, you get all the trials and none of the notoriety. And so welcome to the life of Costas Macreese, And so when I say the epitome of a great missionary, that's the way I think about him. I have a very high regard for this man. So there is uh, Costas uh, with his wife, and I can't remember his wife's name just off uh, the, the top of my head, uh, but I like the guy. Don't you sort of like him just looking at him? It's like, I've already told you that he's a great missionary, but even the picture is like, yeah, I like that guy. So John the Baptist is a stand-in. He's called the friend of the bridegroom. In fact, that is what a stand-in is, uh, is the friend of the bridegroom in the Jewish culture would be the man who, you know, so say I have proposed to Leslie and then I need to go away to prepare a place. Well, then I, I have a stand-in who's going to be my trusted friend, who then is going to care for my soon-to-be wife, or as some would say, they already entered into some kind of covenantal thing, so that was his wife. He was just going to come back and get her, You know, however that is interpreted. However, the concept being, I am going to entrust her to him, and the reason I entrust her to him is I believe he's trustworthy, and I believe he will care for her the way I would, but he doesn't get any of the benefits of marriage. He just has to give up his life to preserve her. Isn't that an interesting role? And it's called the friend of the bridegroom. And I could say, introducing John the Baptist. John the Baptist even calls himself a friend of the bridegroom. I mean, it's not just me calling him that. He calls himself that. And therefore, you understand the term when Jesus comes, what does John need to do? He needs to decrease that Christ would increase. And that's the role of the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom isn't the one to draw attention to himself. No, 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 no. Don't try and woo the heart of the bride. No, 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 that's not your role. Your role is to decrease when he comes so that he could have his bride. Uh, I don't know if you're putting the pieces together, but we are the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, we're not the end. The, the body, even the body of Christ, this lost and dying world, the job isn't that they see us. It's that they see him. Our job is to decrease that Jesus would increase in this earth. Our job isn't to be famous, to be known, to be loved and cared for by this world, or even by the church. It's that we would cause him to be, that he would be known, he would be loved, and he would be cared for. We're not looking for the worship. We want to steer the worship right where it belongs. John three twenty-eight through 30. You yourselves bear me witness, says John, that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Matthew eleven eleven. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So we have a tremendous compliment being paid, this friend of the bridegroom. He's modeling something that is going to be very, very significant to all of us. It's a, it's a picture. It's a picture of what the Holy Spirit's role is going to be. It's a picture of what the church's role is going to be unto Christ. The marriage proposal. So when I proposed to Leslie, this is actually one of the things that I remember even articulating is that I'm a temporary stand-in bridegroom. Isn't that a weird thought? To think of a marriage covenant, it's still, I'm still a friend of the bridegroom. The end goal of my wife is actually not me. I'm merely an earthly shadow of the one who is her true bridegroom, capital B. I'm a lowercase b bridegroom. You know and I'm not that impressive next to that guy, right? And so, as a result, even at the beginnings when I was proposing, Leslie, I recognize that I'm just a stand in. Your true bridegroom is Jesus. The art of standing in. And I'm going to say, doing it Costas Macrice style. So, Don Richardson, and I'm going to quote Don Richardson because he's the author, he was a fellow missionary, for those of you that don't know Don Richardson. He's written some of the greatest missionary books that exist. Lords of the Earth is a fantastic book. Very well written, profound. But he also wrote Peace Child, and he wrote Eternity in Their Hearts. He has other books as well, but those are just like exquisite uh, pieces of work. But Don Richardson has passed away now, but he was a fellow missionary down in Papua New Guinea at this time. And so the reason he's going to find out about this story is because It was somewhat of a spoiler uh, here, but when Stanley Dale is killed, I know, I just gave away a lot right there, Uh, but when he was killed, he went, Don Richardson actually went to investigate as a fellow missionary to find out what's happened, and so he's going to be boots on the ground in the midst of all this drama, and he's going to get to know the story, which he's then going to write down in Lords of the Earth. So he knows the story, and he's going to do a deep study of this whole storyline, Stanley Dale. And in that, he's going to come across a character named Costas Macris, who he's going to become really acquainted with uh, as well. It was then that he came, an exuberant young Greek named Costas Macris, a missionary son of an enterprising businessman in Athens. So, if I was going to give context, this ministry that Stanley Dale is starting, this mission outpost, is in a very, very dark place. I've already hinted of how dark Papua New Guinea is, but where Stanley Dale is going to go is possibly the darkest spot out of all the dark. And the people, the Yali is the name of the tribe that he is going to reach or seek to reach, is, uh, they're called, they call themselves the lords of the earth. And they are arrogant and proud and evil and they're not fans of Stanley Dale, and they feel threatened by him, and Stanley Dale is quite the character. He doesn't uh, care. And in fact, he sort of likes the challenge, and so he plants himself right in the midst of this, and there's a lot of heat and turmoil, even at this time when Stanley Dale has to take a reprieve. I can't even remember the reason why he had to step away, but Costas McCrese and his wife are called in. But Costas is going to come first, and he's going to try and set the stage for his wife and son to join them. So Don Richardson continues, as he, speaking of Costas, stepped out of the Cessna into Ninya's muddy airstrip, so Ninya is the location, Costas was not impressed. Earlier, he had enjoyed the two years ministry in the sunny Swart Valley among the cheerful Donny people the tribe that makes visitors feel like kings and queens since the gospel changed their hearts. But here at Ninia, the people stood back in the shadows, glowering. The aircraft roared down the airstrip and took off for sunnier climbs, leaving Costas alone in that tomb-like valley. He walked down to the Dale residence and opened the door with a key that had been given to him. No fires had warmed the house for several weeks, and its dark interior seemed even colder and danker than the weather outside. Costas shivered. The house, he saw at once, was still uncompleted. In the kitchen and a number of other rooms, ceilings had not yet been filled in. Heat from the kitchen stove will quickly escape among the rafters and out through the thin metal roof, leaving the greater part of the house unwarmed, he reasoned. I must put a ceiling over these rooms before I bring Alki, well, there's his wife's name right there, Alki, and the children here. Then Costas saw the gunny sacks still hanging in some of the doors and lining many of the walls. Stan replaced a number of them with brown waterproof paper. As Costas watched, cold mist blew in through the cracks in the walls. This will all have to be lined with pandanus bark, he mused. Costas wanted to take care of these things so that Stan could give his full time to language study and helping the yali when he returned. The split palm bark floor was not yet nailed down in a couple of rooms and was springy underfoot, and the wind and mist seeped in through occasional gaps. I will nail this down and cover the entire floor with a second layer of palm bark to cover the gaps, he decided. So he is seeing need everywhere he looks, and he realizes that when he sees need, he should deal with it. I remember my grandpa, Obendorf, that's my mom's uh, dad. Isn't that funny? I, my, my mom's maiden name was Obendorf, and my dad's name is Ludi. I had quite the choices, right, for, for my name. And, but Grandpa Obendorf uh, used to have a philosophy, and it was this. He used to speak with a deep grovel, and he would say, if there's a dish in the sink, you clean it. <laughs> you know what? That's a profound statement. In other words, if something needs to be done, what do you do? You do it. You don't come up with an excuse of why not to do it. You just do it. And that's the sort of guy Costas Macreese is, okay? This needs to be dealt with. All right, this needs to be dealt with. What's he doing? He's coming in to help a missionary. And so he needs to do this in multiple fronts. He needs to somehow stabilize the work that Stan is doing uh, with the Yali people, but he also wants to help Stan because Stan obviously isn't very good at building a house. I mean, this is a disaster area. So Costas is. So Costas is going to use his skill to actually be to serve Stanley Dale. Day after day, Costas worked trimming, sawing, and hammering. Pat Dale would scarcely recognize her home, which her husband, in his eagerness for language study and preaching, had never completed. Gone were the drab sackcloth walls and doors. Snug, windproof walls, floors and ceilings made the room seem cozy and comfortable. But exuberant Costas was still not satisfied. The house was still cold because the heat that the wood-burning stove gave was trapped in the kitchen and could not circulate throughout the house. Resourcefully found a way to correct the problem. He cut long rectangular slots in the walls just below the ceiling line throughout the house, allowing warm air from the kitchen to circulate to every corner of the house. The effect was amazing. Central heating had come to the remote Hellock Valley. Likewise, Costas installed a flush toilet along with a shower, washbasin, sink, and wall mirror in a room Pat planned to use as a pantry. No more trekking out on rainy nights to that drafty outhouse teetering on the edge of a nearby cliff. Still not satisfied, Costas extended the flower beds stand planted, and landscaped the surrounding yard with flat rock pathways and picturesque retaining walls. Gradually, Ninja Station began to resemble an English country garden. I hope the Dales will be pleased with all this, Costas mused. I really like this guy. Now he's about to run into the buzzsaw. In other words, he's coming out and he's saying, I just want to serve. I just want to serve. But he's serving in a zone which doesn't really want him to serve. And this is a hard job that he has been assigned So he's gonna go through what I'm gonna say are three showdowns, okay? Now, I'm not going into any depth in these. I'm just giving you the taste and the flavor of the fact that there's a lot of reason why you might want to call with your radio uh, communications and have a a plane come in and get you to get you out of here. This is Stanley Dale's mess, Stanley Dale's house, which wasn't built very well, and that I'm trying to fix, but it's also Stanley Dale's problems. Okay, why am I going to inherit Stanley Dale's problems? Stanley Dale, I love Stanley Dale. All you have to do is go through my series called uh, "You know, Daring to Do with Stanley Dale. and You'll recognize I love Stanley Dale. However, he wasn't a very likable guy. And everyone that worked with him sort of struggled uh, in knowing how to work with him. And, but he genuinely loved Jesus, and he loved the Yali people. It's just the, the way he did things oftentimes was like coming up to someone and bopping him in the nose and saying, I love you. Uh, that's sort of the way it feels when, when you interpret some of the stories, you just sort of chuckle. So showdown number one, the cursed pig test. Well, the Yali weren't very happy about having uh, Costas McCreese there. And so they figured they would test to see what he was made of. And so they delivered a cursed pig, uh, you know, they cursed a pig and then delivered it to his door. And so he was, like, thankful for this pig. And then someone came to him and said, don't eat it, you know, it's cursed. So you can just imagine how he's going to respond to that. So this is the response uh, Don Richardson records. So they want to see if their spirits are strong enough to kill us, Costas thought. It's a good question and deserves a decisive answer. Butcher this pig for us, Costas said to his helpers, and then called to Alki. Tonight, we're going to eat pork. And he literally... Before the entire tribe is going to make it clear he's eating this cursed pig, and he's going to show them the God he serves is greater than the demons that they serve. Oh, wow, this is showdown number one. Showdown number two, the visiting Balinga test. So Balinga is another like tribe under the, the Yali uh, brand, if you will. And so I'll just read you a little portion of it. The people of Balinga sent warning to Costas not to visit their village. Uh Uh-oh, how do you think that's going to go over? The warning, of course, was the same as an invitation to Costas, for he was determined, if possible, to heal all misunderstandings in the valley. So he feels like whereas Stan Dale can create misunderstandings, Costas is a diplomat. So he is going to take it upon himself, even though he was warned not to go, and he's going to face all sorts of drama in so doing. But his desire is to truly help Stan, so when Stan comes back he inherits a stronger situation. Showdown number three, the school attendance test. The word has gone out, Dongla informed his Greek friend, sadly. The children are not to come to school anymore. Tell them, Costas replied evenly, that those who don't want to come are free to stay away. But if anyone chooses to come to school, no one should prevent him. Whoever prevents them will have meat, have to deal with me. Costas was not at all sure what he would do to anyone who accepted this challenge, but he knew he had to do something. And so Costas' answer found its way back to Undang. The challenge was accepted. The lines were drawn. Now this guy doesn't want a fight. He doesn't want to create any type of drama for himself. He's a stand-in. He's just here for a short season. He wants to help. However, he's also a believer. He's a Christian, and he can't help himself but stand up for Jesus in these situations. Here's a key scene that's going to be big, have a big impact on my life. Next morning. Why are you crying, Costas said to little Deli, who huddled cowering in a corner of the school. My father said they will kill me if I come to school today. But you chose to come anyway, Costas said softly. Yes, Deli sniffed, sniffled, trembling. Don't be afraid, Deli, Costas said, putting his arm around the boy's shoulders. I won't let them kill you. Dongla called Costas outside to the schoolyard. Grimly, he pointed to the ridgeline where angry men from Simivu were milling about, shouting, Luliop joined Dongla and Costas as they studied the scene. "'Let's go up and talk to them,' Luliop advised optimistically. Costas's brow furrowed. "'Me?' he asked himself. "'Go up there and face those angry men. "'A few days ago I risked my life at Balingua. "'Must I risk it again today?' "'Listen to this. "'Then came the subtle temptation. "'I am only a replacement here. "'In a few months' time the man who began this work will return and I will leave.' The honor for whatever is accomplished here will accrue to him, not to me. So why should I put myself in danger? My own work awaits me in some other valley among a people of a different language. Should I not save myself for that work and be content with a mere holding action in this troublesome ninja? I don't know if you've ever had that thought of a different, I mean, it has different words, uh, different replacement words and locations. In it. However, the thought itself, the self-preserving thought, because you have a calling. I mean, you're not just supposed to waste your best, your strength on someone else's calling, are you? Very interesting test of soul because it measures us. And in this situation, what Costas is going to do has a great impact on me. Then, like a buzzsaw cutting through veneer, the words of Christ came to Costas, as to Bruno before him, if any man gives, gives priority to his own fulfillment, he shall lose it. Now that's that same scripture we were reading before. And yet the way it's phrased had a tremendous impact on me. You know, sometimes you see a scripture, and you see the scripture, and you feel like you know the scripture, and then sometimes you see it rephrased, and it's just what you need. If any man gives priority to his own fulfillment, he shall lose it. His dark eyes flashing, Costas set his jaw. I am no mere bystander in this drama, he determined. While I am here, I am just as responsible to do my best as Stan would be if he were present. We have a job to do, and that's to give up our life, to spend it for Jesus Christ. Not to measure it based on accolades and applause and fame and renown and biographies that could be written in the future, but to say, Spirit of God, what is it that you desire me to do? Matthew 16, 25, whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. The amazing role of the Holy Spirit. He is the true friend of the bridegroom. It is better that I go to be with the Father. We're like, what? What do you mean it's better that I go that you go to be with the Father? And then I can send the Holy Spirit, the helper. You see, that helper is coming to lead us to Christ, and Christ implicitly trusts him to not draw the attentions away from their source of salvation. But the Holy Spirit's job is very, very significant, and he is drawing us to Christ. The reason you even know Christ, the reason you even love Christ is because the Holy Spirit has drawn you unto himself, unto Jesus Christ. So we see this. I have a message called the old servant, which we will go through in the semester that you guys are in. But this is a little moment in it. Then Rebecca and her maids arose. So there's a servant of Abraham and Isaac that is going to be sent to go get a bride for Isaac. And in this story, you never know the servant's name. But the servant is going to go and get the bride, and then he's going to bring her all the way back. It says, then Rebecca and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of beer le for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. In this story you have a very clear picture of a father, his name is Abraham, and a son, his name is Isaac, and then an unnamed servant who is laboring to serve the father and the son to bring forth a bride unto Isaac. And what you see in the Old Testament is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit, but you also see a beautiful picture of our role. Our job is not to bring the bride to ourselves, but to bring the bride to Isaac. And that is our privilege, our honor. The stand-in, someone willing to suffer, endure privations, and do hard work, even though the impact of that hard work will ultimately be credited to someone else. The incredible work among the Yali. So if you read Lords of the Earth, you're going to see a global story of a changed people group, and it is remarkable. It is. The Yali people are the least likely to be changed by the gospel that you could even pick out, and yet, boom, they're going to be transformed over a period of time. It doesn't happen quickly, and yet, in history, if you were to sort of put a name on who is most responsible for that, you would say Stanley Albert Dale. Yay, Stanley. Did you see what Stanley did? Did you see the Yali people were totally changed? You don't hear the name Costas Macris. So who did this amazing thing? Well, we know it was God, but sometimes people's names get associated with things, and it's not Costas Macris. Now, I just changed it from Yali to Sawi. The Sawi people are the ones that Don Richardson is going to change. And if you've ever read Peace Child... You would know that it's Don Richardson and his wife Carol that were the tools that God used to change the Sawi. Extraordinary story, by the way. If you guys ever want to read a wonderful missionary story, and yet you're going you're not gonna be thinking of Costas uh, and uh, what it was, or Oc- Akri, Akra, Alki, Alki Macreese. You don't think about them, right? And yet, listen to this. Don Richardson says with remarkable selflessness. Costas and Alki volunteered to delay the beginning of their own pioneer ministry for still another year in order that young Sawi, babes in Christ, might have constant spiritual nurture during the crucial early years of their Christian experience. One year later, Carol and I returned from furlough to find, as Stan and Pat had found at Ninia, that more tribesmen knew Christ as Savior. Three new schools overflowed with hundreds of eager literates, The sick had been faithfully treated, our own house and yard were greatly improved, and bouquets of flowers welcomed us in every room. We looked around us in awe. Never had we seen the spirit of Christ more exuberantly displayed than we saw it in dear Costas and Alki. Though they had greatly improved our home, they themselves had lived the year in an even smaller and less convenient structure. Now when you see that, I don't know what it does inside of you, but it penetrates deeply to say there's something right about this couple. First of all, they're full of joy. In everything they do, they're happy. And in everything they do, they're servant-hearted. In everything they do, they want people to see Jesus. But also, in everything they do, they're willing to give up the applause. And they're willing to serve unnoticed. They're willing to serve in such a way that you and I would never know that they did the serving. Now, the fact that we get a rare peek because of Don Richardson into this, I mean... There's a lot of missionaries in Papua New Guinea that didn't write books. They, he just happens to have served Stanley Albert Dale and the Richardsons in this way, and who would have guessed that Don Richardson was a great writer that would write a world-famous uh, autobiography and biography that would cause us in this room to actually hear the name Costas Macreese? because that wasn't the reason that Costas and Alki did this. And that's what blesses me the fact that we get to see their example is beautiful as well. It's interesting when Stan arrived back and Costas had prepared everything in his house, Stan wasn't very appreciative and tore some things down and didn't like the fact that there was central heating in his house because he he felt like a Christian should suffer more. Yeah, it's just what I want to do is take Stan off to the side and go, buddy, buddy. You've got something very special here. This guy just laid down his life for you. You may want to show a little more appreciation, but that's classic Stan, okay? Stan Dale has a lot of positive qualities. Social interactions wasn't one of them. And yet I still have a very, very high opinion of him. But it's interesting because in the midst of it, there's Costas McCrease and the way he even handled that was with total graciousness. He pours out his life and even when he did and it wasn't even appreciated, He still goes and continues to do it. And there's something about that that is very, very precious. There's two ways to live your life. One is for yourself, for your own fulfillment, and it's empty because it will be fleeting. And in the end, you'll have nothing. Or you could give that up, risk letting it go, and go after God's fulfillment. And when you do, you will never lose that treasure. Everything that you are trading in for, will never be lost. It's the greatest investment a human could ever make. And yet, in the natural mind, it seems ridiculous. It seems foolish to give up earthly fame and renown and privilege for that. I don't want to be Costas and Alki, or do you? I don't want to be like the Holy Spirit who is hidden, doing his work like wind. You know, he did something, he was here, but he never even got noticed for it. And yet, that is the model. The reason the Holy Spirit is given to us is to train us in that life. And truly, this is a privilege. This is our honor. This is how we showcase Jesus Christ. The great stand-in, the cross. You see, it's not just that this is about Jesus' fame. Jesus has modeled the same thing. He gave up his rights. He gave up his way of doing it. And he did only what the Father was asking of him. And he did it for the glory of the Father. And even when you see in Philippians, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Everything Jesus is doing is to point to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? And you begin to recognize this is the pattern of God. This is how he works. Each one of us is willing to give up our way and to be a stand-in. And Jesus was the ultimate stand-in because who should have been on that cross? That's you and me. And instead, he took our place. He took the burden upon himself. As if there was ever a situation like, now why would I do that for them? How is this beneficial to me? And yet, that wasn't the way he thought. He's marked by love. He's marked by the behavior that we esteem, but don't always really want to go after. We like that Jesus has this behavior, but do we really need to participate in this behavior to give up our life, to pick up a cross and to follow him, to deny ourselves? What? That's not attractive. Or is it? Isn't it interesting that when you hear a message like this, it is attractive. It's like, I, I want that. That's what I esteem. Well, I think you've got, you guys have gone a little cuckoo. Because that's not the way we're initially wired. That's a spiritual wiring. That's something the Spirit of God is doing in us. We are esteeming something very different than this world. So this is Stuart Townsend. Uh, just that one stanza from How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which just when you see what Christ has done for us, when you see how the Holy Spirit serves us, when you witness this gospel message afresh, this is a great line for it. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And I don't know how if you've ever had it where when you're singing that line, you just sort of figure you need to sing that one line over and over again because Why should I gain from his reward? That one meditation, why should I inherit the kingdom of heaven? Why should I get eternal life? Why? I didn't do anything. I cannot give an answer to that. Uh, Why should I benefit from his work? But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. He has done the work. He did this. He did this for me. Now it's my privilege like Costas and Alki, to do it for others and to serve them in a way where I may not get any payback, I may not get any monetary gain, any popularity increase. That's not the reason we do it. We do this because Jesus did it for us, and he is deserving. Father, this is a miracle life that we want to understand in a greater degree familiarize us lord jesus with what it means to give up our way our rights our life and to live yours spirit of god we we want to live as you have chosen to live as you do live lord we want to be bent to be humble to do that which brings people to the truth and not to ourselves lord we want to steer the spotlight where it belongs Father, we need you to even do this. Apart from you, we are unable, ill-equipped, but with you. This is the life that we not just can esteem, but have. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.